Hello and welcome to Paediatric Emergencies. I'm Chris Flanagan, a paediatric intensivist from the United Kingdom. And in this series, I'm working my way through the common paediatric emergencies, trying to provide a structured approach to the resuscitation and stabilisation of the critically ill child who needs intensive care support to be initiated outside the intensive care environment. So in this episode, I'm going to deal with sepsis. And sepsis is definitely one of the more complex and difficult emergencies that I'm going to cover. And there are a number of common mistakes that I see repeated time and time again in children that are referred through to me. So I'm going to try and emphasise these as I go along so you can try and avoid making the, the same mistakes. Because if you don't recognise um, sepsis quickly enough, or you don't escalate the treatment promptly, it can be very unforgiving. Sepsis is also a really frustrating condition because even when you've done everything absolutely perfectly and in a timely manner, um, sometimes the disease process just doesn't respond to anything that you do and the child dies and there's nothing that can be done. So the aim of this talk is really to give you the knowledge you need to manage that really sick child who presents to the emergency department so you can give them the best chance of survival. So I'm going to continue on with the same format of the last couple of podcasts and start off with a case. Okay, so the case is a previously fit and well nine-month-old boy who's brought into the emergency department by his mother with a 10-hour history of pyrexia and lethargy. So he's waiting in the waiting room to be seen by the doctor when his mother notes that he's developed a rash and takes him up to the nurse. So the nurse looks at the rash and realises it's a non-blanching rash, which is actually spreading before her eyes. And she also notes that he appeared more unwell than he did in triage. So she rushes him into the resuscitation area and calls for help. So like any sick child, he's assessed using an A, B, C, D, E approach. So when they look at the airway, the airway is patent and 100% oxygen is applied. He's a little tachypneic for his age at 55 breaths per minute, um, but doesn't have any respiratory distress. Um, and this wouldn't be unusual to be tachypneic um, with sepsis. Um, there's a number of reasons for this. Um, firstly, there's pyrexia itself will cause um, tachypnea. Um, and if the child is septic and has a lactic acidosis, you'll get respiratory compensation for a metabolic acidosis, uh, similar to how you get uh, Kussmaul's respiration in diabetic ketoacidosis. When his chest is listened to, there's no additional signs. He's got good air entry bilaterally, and his peripheral oxygen saturations are 100% in the 15 litres of oxygen that he's on via a non-rebreather mask. So um, looking at his cardiovascular system, he has cool peripheries, um, and how I like to assess this is I'll start with my hand peripherally and run it up the limb uh, and see where the temperature starts to warm up. So when you do this here, um, he's actually cold right up to his trunk. And again, this is useful to repeat um, each time you do the cardiovascular exam to see how he's responded or deteriorated with what you've done. Um, when you feel his pulse volume, his peripheral pulses are impalpable and he has weak central pulses. He has a prolonged central capillary retail full time of uh, five seconds. He has a sinus tachycardia on the monitor at 198 beats per minute. 
and is markedly hypotensive with a blood pressure of 55 over 28. So severe signs of uh, cardiovascular shock. And the most worrying feature here is the blood pressure being low. And that's because in the initial stages of shock, children will compensate for it very well by increasing their heart rate and through vasoconstriction and will maintain their blood pressure um, right until they decompensate and at that stage um, hypotension is actually a peri-arrest sign. So what this tells us is we have a really sick child with decompensated shock. So looking at the disability, he is drowsy but uh, barely responsive to his mother's voice. Um, his pupils are equal and reactive to light and his blood sugar is a little elevated at 9.2 millimoles per litre, which is pretty normal for uh, sepsis, as there's release of stress hormones which cause hyperglycemia. Going on to exposure, he is pyrexic at 39.2 degrees C. He does have a puparic rash, which as you look at it, appears to be spreading, and he's peripherally very mottled. So, um, classical presentation of uh, meningococcal septicemia. So you go on to manage him as per the Meningitis Research Foundation guidelines and they have an excellent algorithm which if you haven't seen um, I would strongly encourage you to go and have a look uh, at it on their website. So I'm going to go on to the initial management of this child um, and without a doubt the most important first step is to call for help. Um, the mortality rate for meningococcal disease is 10% and it's recommended that there should be a consultant involved in the care of the child um, from the outset. Um, this child is sicker than your average meningococcal disease patient and is actually in decompensated shock. Uh, and as I mentioned, the low blood pressure uh, is a peri-arrest sign. The other important feature from the history is how quickly this child has got the sick. Um, they were triaged in the emergency department um, where they were felt they were fine to sit out in the waiting area and within a short period of time has become peri-arrest. So this is a very steep um, deterioration and the patient is likely to continue on this trajectory. So they're likely to get worse. Um, so you can pretty much be guaranteed um, this child is not going to respond to your initial management. They're going to need intensive care support. So it doesn't really matter how experienced you are, you're going to need extra help. So get these people involved at an early stage. So after calling for help, the next thing to do is to give this child some oxygen. So we're all taught that um, during our initial ABCD assessment, we should put oxygen on all sick patients. Um, this is particularly important in this case because shock really is the inability to deliver enough oxygen to the tissues to meet their metabolic demand. So by giving this patient oxygen, what you're trying to do is increase the oxygen going to the tissues. So I want to take a little bit of time here to go through um, a really important formula, um, which I'm going to come back to a number of times in this talk, and that's the formula for delivery of oxygen to the tissues. So the formula is DO2, which is delivery of oxygen to the tissues, equals 1.34 times the haemoglobin times the arterial saturation of oxygen 
divided by 100 plus 0.023 times the PaO2 in kilopascals, all times the cardiac output. Um, so I'm just going to go and explain this formula in a little bit more detail. And I would just encourage you to try and persist with me with this because this is a really important principle um, that I'm trying to get at because it influences the decision making um, at a later stage when you're trying to increase the delivery of oxygen to the tissues. So oxygen is carried in the blood in two ways. It's carried um, bound to hemoglobin um, for the most part and it's also dissolved um, in the blood. So the first part of the formula um, looks at the oxygen content of the blood um, bound to hemoglobin and that is 1.34 which is Hofner's constant times the hemoglobin uh, in grams per litre times the SaO2 divided by 100. So that's the um, oxygen content of the blood um, bound to hemoglobin. Um, so we said oxygen is also dissolved in the blood um, and the second part of the formula 0.023 times the PaO2 if you're using kilopascals or 0.003 times the PaO2 if you're using millimetres of mercury is actually the oxygen content of blood dissolved in the blood. So um, you can see that the first part of the equation is, is going to give you quite a big number where the second part, um, the dissolved oxygen content, is actually quite small. And the only way you can really significantly manipulate this is to use hyperbaric oxygen. So um, when you're thinking about ways to increase oxygen delivery to the tissues, you can generally disregard this bit. Um, so you can see there's really only three manipulatable factors that you can adjust um, to increase oxygen delivery to the tissues. Um, and these are hemoglobin, um, oxygen saturations and cardiac output. Um, so at this stage the patient's cardiac output is likely to be impaired um, and which is the main reason you're struggling to deliver oxygen to the tissues. So at this very early stage the one thing that you can do is increase the saturation. So make sure your saturations are 100% um, to increase oxygen delivery to the tissues. And the first thing you do here is to apply oxygen and if this isn't effective then you can support the, the respiration with some PEEP if needed. So I don't expect you to remember this equation um, and we would almost never calculate actually the, the oxygen delivery to the tissues um, from a clinical point of view um, but it's just important to remember those three parameters so it's saturation, haemoglobin and cardiac output um, and which of these do we need to manipulate when we're not delivering enough oxygen to the tissues. Okay, so you've called for help and put oxygen on the patient. The next thing you're going to need to do is to get some access. Um, and what I would say here is that you have 90 seconds or two attempts to put a peripheral line in. And if you don't manage to do that, you should put an interosseous line in. And in fact, you're going to need two um, interosseous lines um, to manage this patient effectively. So two, two ports of access in within 90 seconds and as I mentioned at the, in the introduction there's a number of um, common mistakes that are made um, and this would be one of them taking too long to get access. So this is a peri patient who needs immediate intervention. 
So I think there could even be an argument made for going straight for interosseous access because the patient's going to be shocked, they're cool peripherally, and getting a peripheral line is going to be very difficult. So when you get your access, you're going to want to take some bloods off. And there's a standard set of bloods that should be taken, which I'm going to cover a little bit later in this talk. Um, but they're all on the Meningitis Research Foundation um, algorithm. And in fact, um, some of the hospitals I've worked in before have what's called a meningococcal pack. Um, so it's a pack containing all the forms and bottles that you need to send off. So you don't actually need to think about what you're doing in a stressful environment. And it means you're not going to miss a test that you need later on to make an important decision. So if this is something that your hospital doesn't do, it's something worth um, suggesting. Okay, so now that you've got access, um, the first treatment for shock is to administer a fluid bolus to the patient. And uh, the guidelines recommend 20 mils per kilo of normal saline over five to 10 minutes. Um, and to practically do that, you need to be drawing the fluid up in a syringe and pushing it in by hand. Um, if you just hang it up as a drip, even if you set the drip infusion rate to the maximum rate, it's going to take longer than 5 to 10 minutes to get the fluid in. Like I've said, this is a peri-arrest patient and your interventions need to be quick with immediate reassessment. There is a trend in paediatrics to give um, smaller volumes of fluid boluses um, with immediate reassessment giving more if needed um, and this is appropriate for other clinical scenarios for example in the intensive care environment I quite often give five mils per kilo at a time reassess and then give more because with fluid bolus it's often the case that you can uh, you can always give more but once you've given it it's harder to take the fluid away again this would be one scenario where um, that practice would be wrong this is a patient with severe shock who um, quite often needs um, up to three times their blood volume in fluid boluses over the first 24 hours. Um, so you need to be aggressive with the fluid boluses and you must give 20 mils per kilo um, at a time, at least initially. And again, this is one of the other common mistakes that I see is that not enough fluid is given or that the fluid is given too slowly. Um, and in a patient like this, um, the consequences of doing this can be disastrous. So now I want to spend a little bit of time um, looking at which fluid we should be giving these patients. And this brings up the colloid versus crystalloid debate. So the theory behind using a colloid in these patients are that the colloid has uh, larger particle sizes, which uh, exert an oncotic effect and uh, therefore more of them stay in the circulating volume. So in theory, you should have to give uh, less of them. In actual practice, um, these patients have leaky capillaries. Um, so the colloid leaks out into the tissues and draws fluid with it. Um, and at present, there's no evidence that actually administering a colloid uh, over a crystalloid provides any additional advantage. Looking at the um, actual guidelines, they recommend that your first 20 mils per kilo fluid bolus should be normal saline, and that after um, 20 mils per kilo, you can either give 0.9% saline or 4.5% albumin, uh, and 4.5% albumin is a natural colloid. 
Um, what you do really depends on you uh, and your availability of 4.5% albumin. If I had 4.5% albumin in the emergency department, I probably would use it as I'm giving more and more uh, fluid boluses in place of normal saline. Um, but like I say, there's currently no evidence that it improves outcomes. And rather than get yourself stressed that you don't have colloid, um, it's often easier and simpler just to give normal saline boluses because you have enough um, other things to be concentrating on that actually will improve outcomes rather than worrying about the type of fluid that you're going to give and wasting time sending somebody off to get 4.5% albumin when they could be doing something more productive. And at the same time as you're pushing the fluid bolus in, you should also be giving um, intravenous antibiotics. And that's the reason I said initially that you need the two points of access right from the start. I'm going to cover the specific antibiotics a little later in this talk. So I want to go on to the progress um, of, the, of our patient. So um, 10 minutes after being moved into the resuscitation area, um, we have two ports of uh, intravenous access. The first 20 mls per kilo um, fluid bolus of normal saline has been pushed in and the patient has also received a dose of 50 milligrams per kilogram of intravenous cathotaxin. You go on ahead and reassess the cardiovascular system and find absolutely no change in any of the parameters, so the patient's still poorly perfused and hypotensive. So immediately, a further 20 mls per kilo of normal saline bolus is given. So that's pushed in over another five minutes. So at this stage, 40 mls per kilo of normal saline has been given and you go on ahead and immediately reassess the cardiovascular system. And at this stage, you find absolutely no change. Capillary refill, still five seconds. Peripheral perfusion, poor and still hypotensive. So this is your decision point in managing these patients um, after 40 mls per kilo. Um, if the patient is still showing signs of shock, unresponsive to uh, fluid resuscitation, there's three things that you need to do. The first thing you need to do is to give another fluid bolus. So the patient is given another 20 mls per kilo of normal saline. Again, over five to 10 minutes. So it's important to note by this stage you've given 60 mls per kilo in fluid um, and with the average child having 80 mls per kilo um, as a blood volume you've actually given uh, three quarters of the child's blood volume uh, in fluid boluses. So I want to spend a little bit of time here um, to talk about the reasons shock occurs in sepsis uh, and it occurs for a number of reasons. Um, Firstly, you get uh, intravascular volume depletion, and, and that occurs for two main reasons. You've got leaky capillaries, so the fluid leaks out into the interstitium, um, and as well you've got vasodilatation, which increases the potential space for the intravascular um, volume. And the third main problem is you get myocardial dysfunction, so the heart doesn't pump effectively. So far for this patient, all you've done is fill them up with fluid. Um, so hopefully after 60 mls per kilo, you should have restored their intravascular volume. Um, although this will continue to go down again, and you're going to have to keep topping it up. 
Um, you would hope that at the moment with the rapid fluid boluses over 20 minutes um, and three quarters of the blood volume, um, the patient's intravascular volume should have been restored. So what you have here is fluid resistance shock. Um, and at this stage now you need to address the vasodilatation and myocardial dysfunction um, by providing the patient with some vasoactive drugs. So to provide inotropy for the heart and to squeeze the, the vasculature um, and reduce that potential space. So starting vasoactive drugs is the second of the three things that you need to do. So um, most of the guidelines would recommend that you start dopamine at uh, 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Um, and I'll cover the specific vasoactive drugs a little later in this talk. What I do want to say now though is that starting this infusion is time critical. And for you to be able to do this um, effectively requires you to have thought about how you will do this prior to the emergency occurring. So if prescribing critical care infusions isn't something that you do on a daily basis, you must have a method that you will use should the situation arise and you are forced to uh, prescribe one of these. For me, the, the way I would do this is to have uh, an emergency drugs calculator on my smartphone. So it's always in my pocket and always available. But you could, for example, have a poster in the resuscitation bay with a way to calculate these. Um, or you could have um, an emergency drugs calculator on a desktop computer. But what is important is you've thought about the method you're going to use in advance. You know how to use that method so that you can calculate the correct dose and get the infusion made up quickly. I'm actually going to go one step further. In this case, it's pretty predictable that this child is going to need anotropic support um, for the reasons we mentioned earlier in the case. Uh, what I would actually say is working out the dopamine infusion while the first fluid bolus is being pushed in so that the nursing staff are able to prepare the infusion, have it connected up to the patient, have all the calculations checked, the infusion pump programmed, so that once you've reached that stage of 40 mils per kilo, you're ready just to hit the go button on the pump and there's no delay in administering a life-saving treatment to the child. So this brings us on to the third thing that you need to do for this patient, and that is arrange for urgent semi-elective intubation and ventilation. Um, and there's three main reasons for doing this. The first and most important reason is that actually intubating and ventilating this patient will provide significant support for the cardiovascular system. It will significantly reduce the patient's oxygen demands and will allow the ventilator to take over the work of breathing, therefore allowing the cardiac output going to the muscles of respiration to be diverted to support other vital organs. Secondly, um, you've already given this patient uh, 60 mils per kilo of volume and you're likely to need to give them more. They've got leaky capillaries, so they're probably already developing pulmonary edema and almost certainly will develop pulmonary edema over the next hour or so. So intubating and ventilating the patient allows you to provide PEEP to combat this pulmonary edema 
and to maintain your oxygen saturations at 100%, um, which we've already said is really important for delivering oxygen to the tissues. Finally, uh, the third reason for intubating and ventilating these patients is to allow uh, you to cite uh, a central and arterial line, which are, are generally quite difficult to do in an awake child. So now I want to talk you through um, how you will actually do this in this child. And to do that, I'm going to use a systems-based approach, starting with airway. Okay, so before I start and talk you through my plan for how I would manage this airway, um, I just want to stress one really important point. Um, and this is that actually probably the biggest challenge that you're going to have in managing this patient in the DGH is actually getting them safely onto a ventilator without them arresting. Giving an anaesthetic to a patient who is as sick as this is a really dangerous process. At the moment, this patient is awake. They have their own endogenous catecholamines. The moment you put them to sleep, that's gonna stop. You're also giving them a drug to put them to sleep which depresses the cardiovascular system. And it's a really common time for these children to arrest is during the induction of anesthesia. So if you haven't appropriately prepared the patient or planned for everything that can go wrong, there's a reasonable chance this child will arrest on you. Even if you do everything perfectly, there's still a chance this child will arrest on induction of anesthesia. And the reason I want to make this clear here is that actually most of the people in the room won't be used to giving anaesthetics and will actually be thinking that the most challenging thing is actually whether you get the tube in or not. Uh, and in this scenario, that's generally not that difficult, but it's the effects of the anaesthetic on the cardiovascular system that do cause the problem. And if you don't know this, um, you won't understand the reason for all the, the preparation and the steps that I mention. So the first thing I want to cover is the indications for intubation and ventilation. And we've already mentioned that it is signs of shock that are unresponsive to 40 mils per kilo of fluid resuscitation. Um, other reasons you may need to intubate the child um, if there's signs of airway obstruction or loss of the protective airway reflexes. For example, if the level of consciousness becomes depressed because the child's either not just not perfusing their brain or develop uh, cerebral edema. What's slightly special about this particular scenario is that resuscitation of the cardiovascular system takes priority over intubation and ventilation. Um, because if you proceed to induce anesthesia before appropriately resuscitating the cardiovascular system in a patient as sick as ours, you can be almost guaranteed they'll arrest on you. So in this particular scenario, for example, if the patient's not ventilated effectively or there's signs of airway obstruction, you should open their airway manually. You can use airway adjuncts and you should provide support to the, the respiration using um, an anaesthetic bagging circuit. Um, and at the same time, resuscitate the cardiovascular system with fluid and vasoactive drugs before proceeding to induction of anaesthesia and intubation and ventilation. So um, while plans for intubation and ventilation are made and drugs are drawn up, 
um, I would support the respiratory system with an anaesthetic bagging circuit with PEEP in 100% oxygen. Um, it's important that um, somebody senior um, is involved in the intubation and this should be a consultant anaesthetist or intensivist if at all possible. Um, and if time allows, it would be good practice to discuss your plan for induction um, with the retrieval team, um, if, particularly if you're inexperienced in this area. So prior to the induction of anaesthesia, I would give a further fluid bolus of 10 to 20 mils per kilo of normal saline or 4.5% albumin. And I can't stress the next point enough, your peripheral vasoactive drugs must be running and must have reached the patient. So most of the guidelines have said we'll recommend you start dopamine at 10 mics per kilo per minute, either via peripheral line or an intraosseous line. I personally prefer to use a peripheral adrenaline infusion, um, generally just because I feel it's a better drug and slightly more titratable. Um, but whatever you're going to use, it's important that your drug has reached your patient, i.e. it's got through the dead space of the line. So I know for the connectors that go onto the cannula that I use, the dead space is 0.3 mils and the dead space of the cannula itself is 0.1 mils. So I have 0.4 mils of dead space to get through. So when I start my infusion, I'll bolus 0.4 mils and then start the infusion running at a stand, whatever rate I want it to go at. Um, and I'll wait until I see the effects of the drug before I induce anesthesia. Um, if you are going to use dopamine as your first line vasoactive drug, and that's probably what most people are going to feel most comfortable with, um, you should prefer some push-dose adrenaline, so that should there be cardiovascular instability on induction of anaesthesia, you have something to use to combat that. And the simple way of doing that is to dilute 1 mil of adrenaline, 1 in 10,000, um, with 9 mils of 0.9% saline. Um, to make a solution of uh, adrenaline 10 mix per mil. And I'm going to cover the dosing of that in the drug section a little later in this talk. As I've mentioned, most of the people in the room will be unaware of how high a risk uh, inducing anaesthesia is in this child. So it's important prior to induction of anaesthesia that you have a good team brief and share this concern with the, all the members of the team and make them aware that there is actually a high risk of this child arresting on induction. In view of this, it's important that resuscitation drugs are prepared and uh, during the induction of anaesthesia, the blood pressure cuff should be cycling every minute in the absence of an arterial line. And actually, I would allocate one member of staff to keep a finger on the pulse and let the team leader know should the pulse disappear at any stage. And it's important to say if you're intubating the patient, you should hand over the team leading to somebody else while you're doing the procedure. So now I want to come on to the choice of induction agent. And really there is only one choice, and that's ketamine. So drugs like propofol, thiopentone and midazolam um, should not be used for induction of anaesthesia in hemodynamically unstable septic children. Um, Atomidate, while uh, being cardiac stable, um, will suppress the adrenal system, so again, it can't be used. So ketamine is your safest choice of induction agents, 
and ketamine will normally cause slight hypertension by releasing endogenous catecholamines. However, in the situation where you've got a septic patient who has exhausted all their own production of endogenous catecholamines, ketamine will cause hypotension, but it's probably the safest out of all the agents. So um, with this in mind, it's important that you use a reduced dose of the ketamine, and you're probably talking somewhere between 0.5 and 1 milligrams per kilogram with a normal induction dose being two milligrams per kilogram. Um, your choice of muscle relaxant, um, again, for the RSI is between rocuronium and succimethonium. So with the potential for succimethonium to cause bradycardia in a patient who really won't tolerate it, um, my personal choice would be to use rocuronium in an RSI dose of uh, one milligram per kilogram. Um, Similarly, um, it probably makes sense to use prophylactic atropine, um, particularly in infants. And if you have elected to use succimethonium, you probably should use atropine. So another really important learning point here is that when you give the induction agent, it's going to take slightly longer for it to have an effect due to the impaired uh, circulation and transport of that drug to the brain. So it's important to resist the temptation to give more of the drug uh, too quickly. A lot of time to take an effect rather than giving too much um, and it's going to catch up later, causing hypotension. So finally, the last point I want to mention under the ROI is that a cuffed oral tube should be used in all cases regardless of age. Um, this is a patient who's going to swell up with peripheral edema. They're going to get pulmonary edema in their lungs and they're going to be potentially unstable. So you don't want to have to go back and change the tube later because there's a leak around it. So use a cuff tube in all cases. Also, some places have a practice of um, electively changing an oral tube to a nasal tube, and this should be avoided in this case. The patient is obviously coagulopathic. You can see the spreading puperic rash, and the last thing you want to do is cause nasal bleeding by passing a nasal tube that you don't need. Okay, so you've managed to get the child safely intubated and ventilated. So now I want to go on and cover the breathing and the, the settings for the ventilator. So there's generally um, very standard settings on the ventilator that you would expect to use in a septic patient. So an IT ratio of 1 to 2 with uh, an eye time of 0.6 to 0.8 if you're less than a year, um, 0.8 to 1 seconds between 1 and 5 years, 1 and 1.2 seconds between 5 and 12 years, and 1.2 to 1.5 seconds if you're greater than 12 years, and then adjust that depending on the blood gases. From a PEEP point of view, um, you can start with a standard PEEP of 5 to 6 centimetres of water, um, although we've already mentioned this patient's at high risk of pulmonary edema, um, so you may need to go up on that PEEP to maintain your oxygen saturations at 100%. Um, and again, from reasons we've mentioned previously, it would be important that you target saturations of 100% to maximise delivery of oxygen to the tissues, at least in that acute phase. It's important to mention that using more PEEP than you actually need will further impair venous return to the heart, reducing preload. 
um, from a peak pressure point of view, um, starting somewhere between about 20 and 25 centimetres of water, um, our tidal volumes of 68 mils per kilo is a reasonable starting point. And then you can adjust that depending on chest movement and blood gases. Um, as meningitis can often coexist with meningococcal septicemia, and the patient has leaky capillaries that are at risk of cerebral edema and raised intracranial pressure. So if there is any suspicion of this, um, you should target a PaCO2 of 4.5 to 5 and maintain your PaO2 greater than 10 kilopascals. Um, to help do this, it would be important that you monitor the entire CO2 continuously and uh, correlate that with the PaCO2. And like any ventilated child, a chest x-ray should be obtained following um, intubation to confirm the endotracheal tube position. So moving on to the circulation. So from uh, an access point of view, you should already have either two peripheral or intraosseous lines. Um, but to manage this patient, um, you're going to need to insert a central venous line and a peripheral arterial line. From a central venous line point of view, uh, the femoral site is generally preferred in a coagulopathic thrombocytopenic patient because it's associated with obviously less complications and uh, first pass success is important to again prevent complications. So ultrasound should be used. From a monitoring point of view, the patient is at risk of arrhythmias um, due to the vasoactive drugs you're giving them or through electrolyte disturbances. So it's important that you continuously monitor the ECG and also you should monitor central venous pressure and invasive arterial blood pressure to help titrate um, fluid and vasoactive drugs. So a urinary catheter should be inserted and the urine output monitored orally, aiming for greater than one mil per kilo per hour. It would also be important that you take paired blood gases from the arterial and central line every 30 to 60 minutes initially. And what you're checking on those blood gases is the, the lactate and the oxygen saturations. And I'm gonna explain a little bit more on those now. So firstly, I want to deal with lactate. So in shock, you get impaired delivery of oxygen to the tissues. So the tissues switch over from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism, which produces lactate. We now know the relationship with lactate and sepsis is slightly more complicated than this, but I would keep it at this simple level. It helps to explain the role of lactate in sepsis. So lactate has two main roles in sepsis. It can be used as a screening test for sepsis, and it can also be used to monitor the response to treatment. So I'm going to deal with the screening test first of all. So lactate is a great marker for occult sepsis. So that's the early stages of sepsis prior to the patient becoming hypotensive and poorly perfused. And it's just a marker that you're not delivering enough oxygen to the tissues. So for example, in our patient's case, by the time he presented to the resuscitation area and had his initial blood gas drawn off, the lactate was 15 at that stage. Has he have had a blood gas done, for example, an hour earlier when he was in triage, you might have found a lactate of eight. So finding that lactate of eight would have flagged this child up as being potentially unwell and would have facilitated earlier aggressive treatment. 
prior to the child becoming hypotensive, poorly perfused, and developing a paraparic rash. So the rules for using lactate as a screening test would be less than two would be normal and reassuring at this stage, but obviously should be repeated should there be a clinical deterioration. Between two and four, um, worth keeping an eye on and repeating, and above four, really you need to find a reason why the lactate's elevated. And if there's other signs and symptoms of sepsis, this should be aggressively treated. So now I want to come on to lactate's role in assessing your response to treatment. So while I mentioned a single lactate value at the start is really useful, it's actually monitoring what happens to that lactate value as you treat the patient, um, which really gives you an idea, are you winning or not with the patient? So as you resuscitate the patient, the lactate level should fall or clear. And that's a sign that what you're doing with the patient is working. And if the lactate level doesn't clear, then what you're doing isn't working. And you need to have a think about what you need to do differently with the patient. So for example, um, like I said, the initial lactate in our patient was 15. And as we intubated them, gave them fluid and vasoactive drugs, and then took another lactate to find that it had cleared to five, would be reassuring. Um, that we were on the right track with this patient. However, if the lactate level had climbed to 20, it would be a worrying sign. So I actually audited three years worth of meningococcal admissions to my unit um, and found that all the patients who survived had started clearing their lactate by the time they were admitted to PICU, whereas the patients who died, the lactate continued to climb. So the key message here is check the lactate on the blood gas regularly and if it's not clearing, speak to the retrieval team because you need to adjust your management plan. So now I want to talk about the central venous oxygen saturations. So the mixed venous oxygen saturations or SCVO2 really gives you similar information to what lactate does. So they should be interpreted together. So normally when haemoglobin molecules are going out to the tissues in the arterial blood, they're fully saturated at 100%. So if you measure an arterial blood gas, the SAO2 is normally 100%. This then goes out to the tissues. Um, the tissues extract some oxygen from the haemoglobin molecules, and then the haemoglobin molecules come back to the heart. So the tissues normally extract less than 30% of the oxygen, so the haemoglobin molecules going back to the heart are normally at least 70% saturated. So if you take a blood gas from the central venous line, the SCVO2 should be greater than 70%. So in situations where the tissues aren't seeing enough haemoglobin molecules, for example in shock, where there's an impaired perfusion to the tissues, are in the setting of anemia, where there's just not enough haemoglobin molecules, then the haemoglobin molecules that are going past the tissues, the tissues will extract more oxygen from them, so that when you check the venous saturations, they will actually be lower, as more oxygen is stripped from the haemoglobin. So where, where this comes in in sepsis is that we can say, provided the arterial saturations are 100%, 
the central venous oxygenation saturation should be greater than 70%. And if they're not, um, you're not delivering enough oxygen to the tissues for whatever reason. And you should try and adjust either the cardiac output, the hemoglobin, or the saturations to deliver more oxygen to the tissues. So we said uh, lactate clearance and normal central venous oxygen saturations are an important sign that you're winning with this patient. Um, other things you should look for are uh, normalization of the heart rate. Um, you should target a central venous pressure um, greater than or equal to eight centimeters of water. Target a normal blood pressure for the patient's age. So you can estimate the normal systolic blood pressure um, for the patient by using 80 plus their age multiplied by two um, to give you a rough guide. Um, as well as just looking at the systolic blood pressure or the, the mean arterial pressure, it's important to actually look at the pulse pressure of the patient and that's how, either how wide or narrow the, the blood pressure is as this will give you um, an indication of the systemic vascular resistance and help guide your choice of vasoactive drugs. For example, if you have a, a low systemic vascular resistance, you'll have a wide pulse pressure with the diastolic blood pressure less than half the systolic blood pressure. Or if you have a high systemic vascular resistance, you'll have quite a narrow pulse pressure. And again, the vasoactive drugs that you use in each of these situations will be very different. And I'm going to cover this shortly. So other things that you should be targeting are uh, a central capillary refill time of less than two seconds, normal pulse volume with uh, no difference between the peripheral and central pulses, warm peripheries, and a urine output of greater than one mil per kilo per hour. So if you're not able to meet these targets, the most important thing to do would be discuss the plan with the retrieval team, who will be able to advise you on what the most appropriate next step will be. Um, the next bit I'm going to go into is really only for information, but will help explain um, why the retrieval team may be asking you to do a particular intervention. So um, when you're not meeting these targets, the first thing to ask is, do I need to give the patient more fluid? Um, and certainly if your uh, central venous pressure is less than eight, you should give more fluid in 10 mil per kilo aliquots. Um, another indication that the patient may require more fluid is if there's a significant swing on the arterial tracing. So if you follow the top of the arterial tracing um, with respiration and it's going up and down by more than 10% of its height, um, that's an indication that the patient may benefit from some more fluid. So you can actually assess the effects um, a fluid bolus will have without actually giving one um, through two manoeuvres. So these are either passive leg raising, just raising the patient's legs, or by applying sustained pressure over the patient's liver. Um, and both these manoeuvres will temporarily increase the preload to the heart um, without actually expanding the circulating volume. So it'll give you um, a chance to see what effect a fluid bolus would have. So for example, if during this maneuver, the heart rate decreases and the blood pressure increases, um, it would suggest that a fluid bolus would be helpful and you should give 10 mils per kilo 
of fluid. So as well as titrating fluid, the guidelines recommend that you should titrate adrenaline for cold shock and noradrenaline for warm shock. And I'm going to cover how you should make up these infusions and the titration of them um, a little later in this talk. So as we've already discussed in the formula for delivery of oxygen to the tissues, the three variables that we can adjust to increase oxygen delivery to the tissues are saturations, cardiac output and haemoglobin. So if the haemoglobin is less than 100 grams per litre, the patient should be transfused packed red blood cells. So at this stage, if you're still not meeting your targets, you have by definition fluid and inotrope resistant shock. Um, and studies have shown that um, a number of these patients actually have uh, relative adrenal insufficiency. So if you've got to the stage of uh, fluid and inotrope resistant shock, the patient should be treated with uh, low dose hydrocortisone. So that's one milligram per kilogram, uh, four times a day. So uh, further management of the patient will then depend which of the following three categories the patient falls into. And these categories are cold shock with normal or high blood pressure, cold shock with low blood pressure, and uh, warm shock with low blood pressure. So I'm gonna deal with cold shock with normal or high blood pressure first. So after doing all the above interventions, um, if you're still not meeting your targets, the guidelines would recommend that you start some milrinone to dilate the patient. So we normally start this at 0.3 mics per kilo per minute, and uh, some guidelines do mention a loading dose, but certainly in this scenario, um, this should be a minute. Uh, and as the patient dilates, they may require some additional filling. So now you're going on to uh, cold shock with low blood pressure. The guidelines recommend that you titrate uh, noradrenaline. Um, and if you're still not meeting the targets with noradrenaline, that you can consider adding in either dobutamine or milrinone. Finally, for uh, warm shock with low blood pressure, you will already have been titrating noradrenaline and fluid. And if you're still hypotensive on this, they recommend starting vasopressin. And the normal starting dose is not 0 0.003 units per kilo per minute. Um, if you're not meeting your targets with this, they recommend starting some low dose adrenaline. Okay, so I don't want you to dwell too much on the last bits that I've just mentioned. This was really only for information to um, give you an idea of the things the retrieval team may ask you to do. And if you do need to do any of these, it will be under the advice and guidance of the retrieval team. What is important though is that you regularly reassess your patient so that you can work out when you're not meeting those targets that we talked about so that you can have that discussion with the retrieval team and change your management plan to something that will work. From a disability point of view, it's important to keep the patient uh, well sedated and muscle relaxed, so to reduce the oxygen demands. Um, and just standard sedation here would be appropriate, uh, morphine 10 to 60 mics per kilo per hour, and midazolam 1 to 4 mics per kilo per minute. So a significant proportion of patients with uh, meningococcal septicemia will also have meningitis. 
um, and so are at risk of cerebral edema. This is made worse by the fact that they've got leaky capillaries and that you're filling them full of fluid. So you should observe for signs of raised intracranial pressure. Um, and if any of these features are present, for example, um, bradycardia and hypertension, focal neurological signs, abnormal posturing, seizures, unequal or poorly responsive pupils, or papilledema, this should be treated with 3 mils per kilo of 3% hypertonic saline over 15 minutes and you should then ensure all neuroprotective measures are taken. Um, I'm going to do a separate talk on raised intracranial pressure so I'm not going to dwell too much here on uh, raised ICP and neuroprotective measures. It's important that you regularly monitor the blood glucose and hyperglycemia is relatively common in the setting of sepsis due to the release of stress hormones. And in the intensive care environment, um, quite often these patients do require an insulin sliding scale. However, outside the intensive care environment, um, this wouldn't be something that would normally be started. Okay, so going on to look at sepsis. Um, it's key that um, early appropriate antibiotics are given as soon as possible. And if possible, uh, a blood culture should be taken prior to the administration of the antibiotics, provided it doesn't delay their administration. So the surviving sepsis guidelines um, have a standard that um, appropriate antibiotics must be given within one hour of presentation. Um, and this recommendation is based on an adult study um, which showed that for each hour that the administration of antibiotics um, to adults with septic shock was delayed after the first hour, there was an average decrease in survival of 7.6% per hour over the first six hours. So again, it's important that you, as well as getting the antibiotics in early, you give appropriate antibiotics. So um, for community-acquired sepsis with an unknown source in um, an immunocompetent patient um, who's less than six months of age, um, appropriate treatment would be cefotaxime, 50 milligrams per kilogram, and amoxicillin, 50 milligrams per kilogram. And the amoxicillin is added in, uh, in this age group to cover listeria. Once you're three months or older, um, for community-acquired sepsis, either cefotaxime, 50 milligrams per kilogram, or ceftraxone, 80 milligrams per kilogram, would be appropriate. So I want to spend a little bit of time here comparing cefotaxime and ceftraxone um, and explain the advantages and disadvantages of each of these drugs and explain why for me cefotaxime is the, the most appropriate antibiotic to give. So the, the first thing is that you'll see from the antibiotic recommendations um, ceftriaxone isn't recommended for use in infants less than three months of age and that's because ceftriaxone causes bilirubin to be displaced from albumin so it increases the unconjugated component of bilirubin um, which can cross the blood-brain barrier causing connectors um, and if you have a septic patient they already have a number of risk factors for connectors um, they generally have uh, low albumin and are acidic. So for this reason, uh, ceftriaxone isn't recommended for patients at risk of connectors. 
So Keftraxone does have a number of advantages over Kefotaxime. Uh, firstly, it only needs to be given once a day, whereas Kefotaxime in the setting of meningococcal septicemia needs to be given four times a day. The other big advantage of it is that we know that Keftraxone eradicates the nasal carriage of the meningococcus. So as long as the patient's had one dose of Keftraxone, you don't need to worry about the, the nasal meningococcus. Um, if the patient has just been treated with Kefotaxime, then the patient at some stage will require some rifampicin um, to eradicate the nasal carriage of the meningococcus. However, there's two big disadvantages to Keftraxone uh, in the setting of meningococcal septicemia that for me um, really mean you should be using Kefotaxime. Firstly, Keftraxone needs to be given slowly over at least half an hour by infusion, whereas the Kefotaxime can be given over two to five minutes by slow intravenous injection. So I really don't want one of my two peripheral interosseous axis tied up for half an hour with an antibiotic infusion when there's a much quicker way of doing it. And the other um, important thing is that if you give calcium at the same time as you're infusing Keftraxone, there's a risk of precipitation. So calcium, as I'm going to come on to in the electrolyte section, um, is a really important drug um, that I'm giving to a lot of these septic patients in the first half an hour. So if I'm running uh, Keftraxone infusion, I can't give them calcium due to the risk of precipitation. So that's for me the, the main reason why you should be using Keftraxone in these patients. So for our patient um, with quite obvious meningococcal septicemia, um, either Kefotaxime or Keftraxone alone would be appropriate for them. Um, if there is any features of uh, toxic shock, for example, an erythematous rash, um, diarrhea, um, or any other of the features that may suggest toxic shock, um, it's important that you add in some clindamycin um, in a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram to the either Kefotaxime or Keftraxime that you've administered to cover for that. Um, and it's also the treatment for toxic shock would also involve the administration of immunoglobulins. Um, if your patient's actually in hospital, then um, Kefotaxime or Keftraxime won't provide um, adequate coverage against the bugs that may be causing the sepsis. And generally for hospital-acquired sepsis, um, meropenem out of a dose of 20 to 40 milligrams per kilogram would be appropriate. And if the patient has an indwelling central line or um, MRSA colonization, then vancomycin should be added in. It's also important that if your patient is in hospital, um, that you check previous cultures and colonization to help you decide on the antibiotics and involve the local microbiology team. You should also consider the need for antiviral and antifungal treatment in immunocompromised patients. And again, the microbiology will help you with that. I'll often treat um, septic neonates with acyclovir in addition to the, the antibiotics mentioned above to cover congenital herpes infection. And I'll do this particularly if there's risk factors or if there's liver dysfunction. Um, it's also important that you consider whether you need source control. For example, is there something that needs to be bridled? Is there a collection that needs to be drained? 
or is there a prosthetic material that's infected that needs to be removed? Um, another important point to stress, even if you're convinced this patient has meningitis as part of their sepsis, a lumbar puncture must not be performed in the acute phases of septic shock and is contraindicated. It's also important to aggressively treat any pyrexia, as in these patients we should be aiming for normothermia and attempt to reduce metabolic demands and oxygen requirements. So if the patient is pyrexic, um, we should be treating them with antipyretics and consideration given for active cooling. From a renal point of view, um, the patient's maintenance fluids should be restricted and I tend to use 80% of maintenance and as they're like any intensive care patient at risk of SIAGH, they should be given isotonic fluids, for example 0.9% saline with 5% dextrose plus or minus added potassium depending on the serum potassium. The bladder should also be catheterized and urine output monitored every hour aiming for at least one mil per kilo per hour. From a gastrointestinal point of view the patient should be kept nil by mouth. A nasogastric tube should be inserted which should be aspirated to remove any swallowed air which could be spent in the diaphragm and then left on freak drainage. So now moving on to labs and electrolytes. Like I mentioned at the start, there's a standard set of bloods that should be done in all patients presenting with sepsis. Um, so the routine bloods that should be sent are a full blood picture, clotting, cross-match, urine electrolytes, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, liver function tests, glucose, CRP, blood gas, lactate, blood culture, and whole blood for meningococcal PCR, which is an ETTA sample. So one of the things I want to stress here is that you should actually be cross-matching the patient rather than actually sending just a group and save. Uh, a cross-match sample takes about 40 minutes before you're going to have blood available. And if you want to transfuse the patient later, you do want to be waiting 40 minutes from the time you decide you want to transfuse them. So order blood at the outset, and if you don't need it, no harm done. The other thing that you should be requesting when you send off the sample to blood bank is actually some fresh frozen plasma. You can see the patient's coagulopathic um, from the spreading puparic rash that they have, so you will want to give them some FFP. So ask for it at the start, and that means rather than filling the patient full of more clear fluid, the next time you want to give a fluid bolus, you'll be able to give blood products. So looking at the transfusion thresholds, we've already mentioned that we should aim to keep the haemoglobin greater than 100 grams per litre and this is really important for delivering oxygen to the tissues. So if your haemoglobin is less than this the patient should receive a packed red blood cell transfusion um, and we're often given somewhere between 10 and 20 mils per kilo of packed red cells at a time. Um, I've mentioned fresh frozen plasma should be given empirically in, in these patients because you know they're going to have a coagulopathy um, so give them 10 mils per kilo at least of fresh frozen plasma. Um, if the fibrinogen when you get the clotting sample back is less than one gram per litre they should be given some cryoprecipitate. Um, normal dose of that somewhere between 5 and 10 mils per kilo and if your platelets are less than 50 um, because you're going to be doing invasive procedures citing central lines and arterial lines 
um, you should give them a platelet transfusion and a normal dose for platelets again is about 10 to 15 mils per kilo. So now moving on to the electrolytes. The most important electrolyte um, that you need to keep within the normal range is the calcium. And that's because all the vasoactive drugs that you give rely on calcium for them to work. And if your calcium is low, you can turn them up as high as you want. They won't work effectively. So your targets for the calcium are an ionized calcium on the blood gas of greater than 1 or a standard lab calcium greater than 2 millimoles per litre. And I would work right off the blood gas. So if you at any stage the calcium is less than 1 on the blood gas, I'm going to give them some calcium. It's also important that you keep the potassium above 3.5 millimoles per litre and the magnesium above 0.75 millimoles per litre. Um, if they're less than this, they should be topped up. And there's instructions on how to do this on the Meningitis Research Foundation algorithm that I mentioned at the start. Um, another common reason for anotrope failure is actually acidosis. If the patient's particularly acidic, sometimes the anotropes don't work. So if this is the case and the pH is less than 7.2, you should perform a half correction of the base deficit using bicarbonate. Um, in the hope that normalising the pH will improve the anotrope action. And again, the Meningitis Research Foundation gives uh, instructions for doing this. So the next thing I want to do is to talk a little bit about some of the common vasoactive drugs that we've mentioned so far, um, give some instructions on how to make them up, what the normal dosing range is, and really um, where you should be starting with them. So the first drug I want to mention is dopamine. So uh, dopamine is one of those drugs that works on different receptors depending on the dose that you're giving it at. So the normal dose range for dopamine is 5 to 20 mics per kilo per minute. If you're using it at less than 5 mics per kilo per minute, you're really only working on the dopaminergenic receptors, um, which will cause selective vasodilatation of the mesenteric, renal and coronary vessels. Between 5 and 10 mics per kilo per minute, it's really acting on the beta-1 receptors, causing an inotropic effect, so increasing the contractility and heart rate. And at doses above 10 mics per kilo per minute, the alpha effects start to predominate, so causing vasoconstriction. So in septic patients, we'd normally start around about 10 mics per kilo per minute, and that's what most of the guidelines recommend you start at, and then titrate it to effect. To make up standard strength dopamine, you would make up 15 milligrams per kilogram in 50 mils of normal saline, and one millinar of this would equal five mics per kilo per minute. Um, if you're gonna do it peripherally or via an intraosseous line, you make it up a little bit more dilute. So three milligrams per kilogram in 50 mils of normal saline, um, and then you would start this at 10 mils an hour, which would equal 10 mics per kilo per minute. So the next drug I want to mention is adrenaline. So again, adrenaline acts on different receptors at different doses. So uh, low-dose adrenaline, somewhere between about 0.01 to 0.1 uh, mics per kilo per minute, acts mainly on beta-1 and beta-2 receptors, um, causing inotropic effects and vasodilatation. Um, above 0.1, 0.2 mics per kilo per minute, alpha effects start to predominate, causing vasoconstriction. So the normal 
dosing range of uh, adrenaline is 0.01 to 1.5 mics per kilo per minute. And in a septic patient, the normal starting dose would be 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. If you're using it in other scenarios, for example, in a cardiac intensive care, 0.1 mics per kilo per minute would actually be classed as high dose adrenaline. But in the setting of a septic patient, it's a good starting point. Um, again, to make up standard strength adrenaline in a child, it's 0.3 milligrams per kilogram in 50 mils of normal saline. And one mil an hour is going to equal 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. However, if you only have peripheral or interosseous access, you're going to make it up a bit more dilute. So the standard way to make up peripheral adrenaline is just to put one milligram of adrenaline in 50 mils of normal saline. So if you run this at 0.3 times the weight in kilograms, mils an hour, it's going to equal your starting dose of 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. So for our nine-month-old who has an estimated weight of 8 kilos, you would make a milligram of adrenaline 50 mils and round at 2.4 mils an hour. Just to mention a little bit about push-dose adrenaline, because we talked a little bit on this earlier. Um, so the standard way of making this up is to put one mil of adrenaline, which you would use in an arrest scenario, one in 10,000, uh, and dilute that up to 10 mils with 0.9% saline. So you make a solution of adrenaline, 10 mics per mil. So your normal dose of this would be to give 0.05 to 0.1 mils per kilo um, every one to five minutes. So in doing this, you're given similar to your adrenaline infusion, somewhere between 0.1 and 1 mics per kilo per minute. Once your child is 20 kilos or more, you'll just use adult dosing. So that's 1 to 2 mils, or 10 to 20 mics, um, every 1 to 5 minutes, which will give you a dosing range somewhere between 2 and 20 mics per minute. So for our child with an estimated weight of 8 kilos, um, this would work out as giving 0.4 to 0.8 mils at a time. So just make it simple and we give half a mil every time we want to give some. And we give that every one to five minutes as needed. Um, and this is useful uh, in the short term while an adrenaline infusion is being prepared. So we'll go on to noradrenaline. Um, so noradrenaline um, is primarily a vasoconstrictor acting on the alpha receptors, although it does exert some beta-1 effects. Um, the normal dosing range is 0.01 um, to 1 mic per kilo per minute. It's made up in exactly the same way as you would make up uh, adrenaline and has the same starting dose, 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. So we want to mention uh, vasopressin. So uh, vasopressin is a potent vasoconstrictor acting on the V1 receptors. It tends to be used for warm shock where noradrenaline has failed. Uh, the normal dosing range is 0 0.003 to 0.002 units per kilo per minute. And the standard way of making it up is 0.9 units per kilo and 50 mils of 0.9% saline. And if you start at one mil an hour, it's gonna give you a starting dose of 0.003 units per kilo per minute. 
Okay, and if we go on to mention milrinone. So uh, milrinone is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, which has inotropic and vasodilatory properties, um, but also improves diastolic relaxation. The normal dosing range is 0.3 to 0.75 mics per kilo per minute. And the standard way of making it up, whether you're going to give it via a central or peripheral line, is to put 1.5 milligrams per kilogram in 50 mils of normal saline. And if you run this at a mil an hour, it's going to equal 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. So in a septic patient, um, you're going to want to start at a relatively low dose um, of 0.3 mics per kilo per minute. And you definitely shouldn't give a loading dose uh, in the setting of sepsis. Um, one of the things to mention with milrinone is that it does have a long half-life, so that if it does have any undesirable effects, they will hang about long after you've stopped the infusion. Um, so if it does cause unwanted vasodilatation, um, you're going to need to combat this with a vasoconstrictor, as well as filling the patient. So the last drug I want to mention is dobutamine. So like uh, milrinone, dobutamine is an inodilator. Um, at lower doses, it acts mainly on the beta-1 and beta-2 receptors, causing inotropy and uh, vasodilatation. Um, however, at higher doses, it does have some alpha-1 effects, so it can cause vasoconstriction. Um, compared to milrinone, it has a much shorter onset of action and a much shorter half-life. Um, but does have a higher incidence of arrhythmias and increases the myocardial oxygen demand more. Um, normal dose for dobutamine is somewhere between 5 and 20 mics per kilo per minute, um, starting at 5 mics per kilo per minute, and it's made up in exactly the same way as you would make up dopamine. So finally, I just want to mention refractory shock. So what do you do when the lactate just doesn't clear and continues to rise and the patient remains shocked? Well, I think the most important thing, and we've mentioned a number of times, is to discuss things with the retrieval team and agree a plan together. And the one thing not to do is just to keep turning up the existing vasoactive drugs, as I've seen a number of times in the past, as this can actually make things worse rather than better. Um, other common mistakes that I've seen are that uh, you've forgotten to fix a low calcium or you haven't corrected the acidosis so the inotropes won't work. And make sure you don't forget the steroids if you've reached that stage of fluid and inotrope resistant shock. It's also important to consider the differential diagnosis. Have you got the right diagnosis? And in particular in the septic neonate, you must exclude congenital heart disease and an inherited metabolic disorder. I'm going to do a, a separate talk on the CLAPS neonate and we'll cover these issues in that chapter, so I don't want to spend too much time here. For all children, it's important to consider uh, the differential diagnosis of shock, um, which can actually coexist with sepsis. Um, and this includes attention pneumothorax, so the patient may have started off septic, you've intubated them and caused attention pneumothorax. Um, a pericardial effusion, again, could be secondary to central line insertion. Indisusception and volvulus have commonly seen um, misdiagnosed as sepsis. 
um, myocarditis can have a very similar um, presentation to sepsis. Um, diabetic ketoacidosis, um, that's why it's important to find out where, where your base deficit is coming from. Is it lactate? Is it ketones? Um, toxin ingestion, again, could present just like a just like sepsis. Anaphylaxis, um, arrhythmia, um, I've seen a number of babies with uh, prolonged SVT presenting a misdiagnosed as sepsis. Is the child hemorrhaging from somewhere? Um, myocardial infarction in a patient with uh, anomalous insertion of the coronary arteries. Um, pulmonary embolism, adrenal insufficiency, um, hypothyroidism, metabolic disorders, and raised intra-abdominal pressure. Again, would be other things to think about. By the time you're getting to this stage, you'll probably be wanting to think about uh, cardiac output monitoring if you're in the intensive care environment. But obviously outside the um, intensive care environment, this won't be practical. And then just to mention uh, rescue treatments for refractory shock. Um, so it really comes down to two. Um, the first is plasma exchange. Um, and the hope in exchanging the plasma is that you remove all the inflammatory mediators that are causing the problem and causing the surge response. And while there's not really any evidence in the form of randomized controlled trials showing that this improves outcome, um, I have seen a number of patients turn around uh, following plasma exchange. The second rescue therapy is extracorporeal life support. And to allow this to be considered, it's important that you keep the retrieval team up to date with progress. So if you're not winning with the patient, that you let them know so the plans can be made and this therapy can be considered. Okay, so apologies, this is quite a long uh, talk, but there was a lot of information in it and I didn't want to leave anything out. Um, so again, if you have any comments or questions, um, please get in contact via the comments section. Thanks for listening.